In the past, we have, uh, we've done topics such as work, art, politics. We've even done a, a food and faith night where we did a little theological reflection on food and then turned the parking lot into a big farmer's market with food trucks. We'll do that again. That was a good time. Um, and tonight, our topic is loving the city. So that's a big topic. It's a broad topic. It's an important topic. And so I want to just kind of open our night in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love for the city that you sent us to, the city that we're in now. We thank you for your love uh, for uh, the wealthy, for the poor, for those who came before us and who will come after us. And we thank you that uh, you have eyes for the city and a vision for the city. And we ask that you would help us to see through your eyes in whatever limited way we can. Spirit, would you use Ray in the talk tonight and shape us as people uh, who really reflect the glory of Jesus in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get Ray up here, I've got a few announcements and a story. Uh, The first announcement, I always harass you about eating your vegetables, but we've got the Gila Farms CSA. I've mentioned this before. This is a significant thing because um, basically you get fruit and vegetables every week that are grown by refugees who've come to the city here. And it's an organic, uh, organic farmers, some of the best food around. They even grow stuff that you can't get in any grocery store because they get the seeds from, from the, whatever country they're from. I really want to encourage you to go in that back corner there. And Jessica, she's waving her arms. Or waving her hand, just one of them. Um, and uh, you can talk to her about what it looks like to sign up for the CSA. You have to eat fruits and vegetables anyways. Your mom says so. So you might as well get them from the refugee farmers in the community. And even, this is Jason Raber's bag. He's even e- eating vegetables. So if he can eat some veggies, you can too. So um, The other thing I wanted to just announce is to update you on what we're doing in uh, our future First Wednesdays. Uh, We're going to take a break in January. There will not be a first Wednesday in January. But in February, February we will have an art night where we'll basically turn the room here into an art gallery. Um, Then in March, we'll talk about creation care and how does the Bible call us to care for the environment. And then in April, we will talk about science and faith. So those are what's coming up. And tonight's topic like I said before, is loving the city. I want to introduce tonight by just giving us a story of our origins. How did Tempe get here? Talk about the purpose of what this night is. Well, you may or may not know, but there was a man by the name of Charles T. Hayden in the early 1900s. He was a rugged entrepreneur. He was a risk taker. He was in Missouri, and he got rich, but he was bored. So he came out to Arizona, and somehow, someway, he ended up in this rough place called Tucson. And when he was in Tucson, he thought, there has to be a better place than this. (laughs) Not really. He he was an entrepreneur who uh, was doing some business, and he took a road trip up to Prescott because he had to sell something to somebody. But when he was, he got about halfway, he ran into the Salt River. 
And back in the day, the Salt River wasn't just this puny little river that only fills up a little bit when it rains, but it was a rugged uh, river with rapids, and that was very intense when it rained. And he couldn't cross the Salt River for several days. And he stood at the banks of the Salt River, bored out of his mind, thinking, reflecting. And then he climbed up a little mountain, the Tempe Butte that we know as a mountain. And as he sat there, he looked at this barren land and he imagined a city, a city that would become Tempe. And he went and he purchased the land around the mountain. He started a ferry to get across that river that kept him from his business. And he also started a mill, and that's where we get Mill Avenue from. Uh, that was from Hayden Mills, one of the first businesses in Tempe. And that eventually became a city, our city, Tempe. He had eyes, he had a vision to where he could see a city where there was none. And what we really want out of tonight, the goal of tonight, is to be a little bit like Charles T. Hayden, and that we would get eyes for a city. That he had the, the challenge of seeing a city that wasn't there yet, and we have the challenge of seeing a city that is here. So our prayer for tonight is that God would help us to see our city and how we could love it. So I've got a question, a discussion question to start us off with that I'd like you to discuss around your tables. And it's this. Just if you could find one aspect of the beauty of the city and one aspect of the brokenness of the city and just share it around your tables. What's something that's very beautiful that that you love about the city? What's something that's broken that you wish would be different? So go ahead and have that discussion and then we'll introduce Ray in just a moment.
Okay, let's go ahead and bring our questions to a close, our discussions to a close. Okay. Tonight our speaker is Ray Baki. You may not know this, but this church, you have probably been profoundly impacted by Ray because of his influence on many of the, the leaders of the church. So to whatever degree you have been influenced in a good way, it's probably connected to him. And to whatever degree you haven't, we probably just weren't paying in attention in class that day. So um, it is a real honor to have him here. Uh, both Ricardo and I were able to uh, be a part of the, the university that is actually partially named after him, Baki Graduate University. And we took a class about two years ago where we were able to walk around the city of New York and have Ray basically just uh, lecture as we walk through the city, explaining the importance of the city, the dynamics of the city, how God is bringing the nations to the city. And it was an impactful, sweet time, one of my favorite memories because of the way it shaped me and because it produced one of the most awkward pictures of Ricardo you'll ever know. So I'm going to go ahead and throw that up here. This is, this, this is Ricardo photobombing a picture of me and Tim, Tim Keller. Uh, no, actually, this, this picture communicates a couple of things. One is that R Ricardo's uh, kind of awkward and has a little distance thing going on. He doesn't like to be too close to people. Two is that we're both kind of uh, church nerds and that our famous favorite superstars like Tim Keller, a pastor. Um, but three, we were able to meet with Tim Keller and numbers of other leaders, urban mission leaders and church planters on that trip. And almost every one of them talked about how much they had been shaped and impacted by Ray Bakke. So if you've read a book about loving the city, or about uh, loving the least of these, or any, as any aspect of mission, you've probably read a book that's been shaped uh, by someone who's been shaped by him. He was a, a pastor and a church planter in Chicago for a number of years in any inner city Chicago. And uh, recently he retired as the Chancellor, Distinguished Professor of Global Urban Ministry, and a member of the Board of Regents for Bakke Graduate University. He's the author of a number of books. One of them is A Theology as Big as the City. And if you read it, I will make you a batch of hummus. That's a guarantee. So buy the book and read it and then track me down. And he's a man who has impacted this congregation uh, tremendously through his work. Would you go ahead and give him a hand? <laughs> oh, good evening, sisters and brothers. Um, I'm looking out here, and I don't see very many people my age. Uh, when you get to be my age, it's called vintage, I guess. But anyway, uh, like old wine, we just get better. Um, it's a privilege to be here, and uh, there's a lot of fun, I think, for a teacher, and some of you are going to be teachers if you're not already, you're preparing to be. But the great fun of being a teacher is when you go into the students and, and discover 
what they have learned to do, which is far beyond whatever you taught them. Uh, They've taken it to the next level. And that's a promise Jesus made before he left. He said to his disciples, most of whom were sleeping during sermons, and uh, even during the prayer meeting when, you remember the last night, um, Peter, James, and John were sleeping while Jesus was wrestling in prayer. Um, In spite of that, he said to them, greater things will you do because the Holy Spirit will come. And it was a promise. Uh, and I, I see it happening in students that I have around this town, um, which is uh, just amazing to see their impact. Um, I, I grew up rural. My spiritual gift is milking cows, actually. <laughs> I did it from second grade through 12th grade. Um, I logged. My father was a, a logger. Uh, the name Baki, by the way, is Norwegian. It means small mountain. Uh, hill or a Baka is a mountain. And my family in Norway uh, lived on a mountain, so they just called themselves mountain. And on Saturday night, they would walk down the valley about five miles as a family, uh, all winter long, and they would sleep in the hay so they would be on time for church the next morning with all the other families that had come from the different valleys in the mountains of Norway. And um, I grew up in a, in a little Sunday school about 100 miles north of Seattle. There were about 30 of us in the Sunday school, and there were three of us in my Sunday school class, Norm Gordon and me. We had the same logger for a teacher for eight years, And he basically poured his life into three of us. One of us went off to Africa as a missionary pilot for 24 years and now runs a mission flight school. One became the prosecuting attorney of Washington State, King County, um, Seattle area, and prosecuting 10,000 cases a year on average and ran for governor a couple times, missed. He was too moderate, too nice to be the governor of Washington. But he... uh, he was the other one, and he and I and were in that class, and I spent 38 years in Chicago. Uh, I will never, never say a negative word about little churches. Uh, the cemetery in our community was right in front of our church. That was the alumni association of our church. <laughs> and about half of my family was in the little cemetery, and about half was in this little Lutheran church where I grew up. And uh, our theology was really simple in those days, love God follow Jesus, serve the world. And I sense that that's what you're doing. I I see the signs of it around here and in the announcements made and the kind of forums you've had here on previous Wednesday evenings. I would love to have had them. I I married uh, a girl I met when she was 17, uh, 53 years ago. We were married. So um, uh, we've been together a long time. But she's a concert pianist, and uh, we do music in our home. Um, we find musical artists that have retired in the Northwest, former uh, first chair oboe in the New York Philharmonic, for example, plays in our home with her. We have people who are in the L.A. Symphony or the San Francisco Opera. Um, and so we do music in our house. Um, and in Washington State, there are a lot of people who are post-Christian, um, burned out church people who just, they love Jesus, they They just don't like his fan club, which is what they call the church. 
And uh, so we're, we're in that culture now uh, after 38 years in Chicago. And uh, so we're continuing a ministry in, a, in an interesting way. I went to um, Chicago as an 18-year-old to go to Bible college and then uh, came back to Seattle University and then went back to Chicago by then married with my wife and two preschoolers. And we lived for 35 years in a one-mile square with 60,000 people. Um, in our community, there were about 35% Africans, but from many different African subcultures, cotton culture, coal culture, Caribbean culture, uh, many different cultures of Africans. And um, we're 28% Asian, but from many different parts of Asia, from Near East to South Asia to Far East. We were 21% Hispanic, but in spite of a common language, Spanish people are more different than Europeans are from each other, even though they have different languages. I mean, I hope you could understand that convoluted sentence, but Latin culture is very diverse from the Andean to the Caribbean to all of the other cultures, because underneath Spanishness is tribalness in many different ways. Uh, so we were 13% white, white ethnic, and Native American. My kids went to a high school in the inner city which had 2,000 students. They were teaching in 11 languages. My two oldest boys ran against each other for homecoming king. Um, we have two natural-born sons and an adopted son, my oldest son's best friend. He kept recruiting him and bringing him into our home. And we fed Brian for about six months. And then we realized he's not just ho hungry, he's homeless. So we went to court and adopted him. The problem was I already had a kid named Brian. So <laughs> for 37 years now, I've been... The, I've been uh, a black dad. I've got black Brian and blonde Brian. Uh, and when I, it's another way of saying it, it's a quarterback, a tight end, and a wide receiver. 6'2", 6'4", 6'6". My bodyguard. We lived in the inner city of Chicago, and uh, uh, we raised the kids there. We made a commitment to live there as family. Uh, and when they were in the second grade, uh, I said, it's time for you to become natives. I our little game was this. I dropped my kids all over Chicago, gave them money for the subway and money for a phone call and said, here's our game. If you get home by five o'clock without asking, calling for help, you get a free milkshake. And the kids mastered the Chicago subway system um, as second graders. And uh, I took them to riots and fires. The cheapest entertainment in, in the city is riots and fires. They happen everywhere and um, as a pastor, I was required to go as basically help out the police. But if you take your kids, especially little kids, everybody knows you're not a cop or an undercover detective. So it was really my bodyguard. Little kids were protecting me. Because why else would a white honky be at a riot unless you're working for the police department? Um, and so the kids grew up in that atmosphere. They loved it. Um, our oldest son... Uh, Woody is teaching on an Indian reservation high school and coaching girls basketball. And our uh, black son um, is uh, going to work this next week for the Washington State Justice, uh, Juvenile Justice uh, Department. And our uh, youngest is in Washington, D.C., works in Spanish and English, traveling in Latin America and uh, in grant development for a foundation. Uh, and they all grew up in the inner city. And as I was trying to say, two of them ran against each other for homecoming king. 
And my black son was a quarterback and the most popular athlete and gifted player. And, and my white son won. And I said, Woody, how do you win? He said, well, I'm not quite sure, but I think I got, well, I know I got the Arab, black, and Chinese vote. And I said, welcome to America. Um, this was a real awakening for me to see that in my community, there were almost one-third of the nations of the world were in my kid's school. And it gave me a whole different picture of how God was wiring the world for cities. And so I want to tell you a little bit about that in the next few minutes, and then we'll have some Q&A. But here's the scripture, Psalm 107. Some of it's familiar to you, I'm sure. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in a wilderness in the desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses and led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for habitation. So if you want to blame anybody for the growth of Phoenix, blame the Lord God. It seems that God's agenda is to urbanize the world and to bring the nations to the neighborhoods. I'd like to take you on a jet trip around the United States, so fasten your seatbelt. I would like to take you first to Flushing, New York. We could go to Manhattan and catch the number seven train, go out past the New York Mets Shea Stadium, onto the end of the line, past the Arthur Ashe tennis courts that you've probably seen on TV. And at the very last subway stop, if you come up out of the ground and look around, within a half a mile of that subway stop are 133 nations in one zip code. That's two-thirds of the nations of the world in one zip code. The human zoo in one community. Love to take you around L.A. It's a taco stand, you know. Uh, but when you get close to it, you see a sign, kosher tacos. The people eating them are black, and you check, and the guy that owns it's a Korean. That's a quick way of telling you what's going on in L.A. Um, my denomination has 141 churches in the inner city of L.A., and 139 different languages are spoken in 141 churches. Uh, that's extraordinary. If you come to Chicago and I give you a tour, I will show you that in my city, we have 800, where I was for all those years, I'm not there now, but 840,000 Polish people live in Chicago. If you go to San Francisco and you get out at the airport and you start driving downtown, the sign says, welcome to San Francisco, 740,000 population. Imagine, Chicago has 100,000 more Polish people than San Francisco has people. How does that happen? I'd like to take you to the Middle East, but the cheapest way to be would take you to Detroit, which is the capital, the Muslim capital of America. I would love to take you to the Syrian capital. Syria is being bombed. The refugees have been coming. Where do they come to America? They come to Burbank, California. Where would you go to find the Armenians? You would go to Glendale. Where would you go to find the, uh, oh, the people who are coming out of Afghanistan? You'd find them in Fremont, and you'll also find some here. The Somalis are here. 
In fact, if I took you to London, I'd love to give you a tour. I'd take you to the East End, which is Asian, South London is pretty much black, West London's Arab. I said this afternoon to a group, a couple of you were there. Uh, I call it the Empire Strikes Back Syndrome. There were 52 nations in the British Empire. Now all 52 live in London. The, the British are not happy with all this. Uh, and the, but for the church, it's also very confusing because missions always meant cross the ocean that way. Missions was not about bringing the nations to the neighborhoods of London. That's the new situation. Love to give you a tour of Paris, one of my favorite walking cities. They call their neighborhoods arrondissements in French. Uh, Paris is now, there are, there's the 14th arrondissement is about 90% Algerian. Paris itself is 14% Algerian. Marseille, a city the size of Denver, about half the size of Metro uh, um, Phoenix, uh, about 2 million people, 31% is African living in France. Um, I could give you a tour of South America, I'd take you there, take you to Sao Paulo, take you to other cities and show you that uh, the same thing's happening there. I could take you to Asia and show you the same thing. Uh, the nations are flooding into the cities. Here's the astounding one. How many of you have been to Canada? Any, any hands here? Well, okay, you, you got a good picture. It's a, it's a pretty empty country, actually. Um, the population of Canada, the entire country, which is bigger than the United States, um, excluding Alaska, but maybe even including it, um, because they have a huge northern uh, empty space. But the truth is, uh, California has more people than all of Canada. But, but imagine this. In China, there are more people leaving the rural China for urban China than the entire population of Canada every single year. If you can imagine every single Canadian from east to west, relocating every single year. That is exactly, roughly, the equal to the migration of rural to urban China. It's unparalleled in human history. The greatest migration in the history of the world is happening right now inside China. Largely invisible, but it's, it's going to change everything. China is now the second largest Christian country. And so there are, after the United States, there are a number of Christians in China. There are well more than 100 million. And this is, this is going to change that country. And those Christians are going to be increasingly in the cities of China. God is transforming the world. Nations are moving into the neighborhood. Many Americans are unhappy with this, especially white folks. And I think especially since 9-11, Many white people are afraid because it's suddenly aware, we are aware that 87% of God's earth is people of color. Roughly 49% yellow, 13% uh, white, the rest black and brown. And Americans, we, we have been protected. We have been a moated country until 9-11. And now I find many Christians who used to be interested in missions are now sort of circling the wagons to kind of preserve their, their white privilege. And you've had a session about white privilege with, uh, with Tyler Johnson. And so you, you understand that issue. I hope you do. You see it's a real issue. 
Um, many Americans have never lived as minorities. One of the advantages of raising your children in the inner city is the, the white kids like my two sons always understood that they were the minority. They always had to build relationships with people who didn't like, look like them. And yes, and some who didn't like them. Um, so in 1800, the world was roughly eight, uh, 2% of pe people live in cities. In 1900, about 8% of the population of the whole world lived in cities. But by the year 2000, we're at 50%. And in America, we're about 80% of the United States lives in 40 places. And Phoenix is one of those rapidly urbanizing and growing places. So I don't know how you think about this, but I realize that God is bringing the nations to the neighborhoods, and I believe this is an opportunity for churches to reach out to them. The sad part is that some of the newest refugees in America come from the oldest churches in the history of the world. People from the Middle East who have been faithful now being bombed and persecuted, are often here. And many Americans uh, are not willing to reach out to them or even to be there to greet them or welcome them to the community. And some of the most um, desperate situations are happening right now to Christians in Egypt and Syria, and they will, many of them, be coming here. Um, and I wish they didn't have to come here. I wish it were better in their own country than it is. But when they come, they become a sign to us that God is working. And so every church that's in the center of a city, like you are in Tempe, um, you have an opportunity. You're sitting on the edge of America's greatest, or certainly biggest university. And you are in a valley that is now passing or rivaling Houston in size. You're moving from fifth probably soon to the fourth largest city in the country. And that'll be true until you run out of water. Uh, but that's the ecology issue you've got to worry about. Whereas Chicago, we didn't have that problem. We sat on the edge of 20% of the surface fresh water supply on the entire planet, which was the five Great Lakes. Our challenge, and I was on the future Chicago planning committee for one of our mayors, our challenge was how to keep from toxifying that water. And we had to pass air quality controls. It came down pretty hard on some companies, paint companies and others that were putting all their toxins into the atmosphere. And as Christians, three of us on, the, on that commission in the city were thinking, how does a city steward God's water system? How does a city partner with Milwaukee Cleveland, Buffalo, Toronto, Marquette, Michigan, uh, to preserve this water system, this precious water, because the world is running out of water largely. And so the arid southwest in the United States is going to run out of aquifers someday. You'll need Chicago water. And uh, so you better say nice things to the old Cub fans when they come down here uh, every spring, because you may need their water someday. Yeah, i just give you a little heads up on that one. Um, I know many people who do not like the idea of a city but a city is a gift of common grace for many many people a city is where the hospitals are for the poor a city is where the services are for the elderly 
A transit system is a gift of common grace for people who can't drive, the blind and the maimed and others. A city is a gift of safety for people who've often been abused and beaten in rural areas. Um, And so for many people, the city is a place of salvation. And I think it is really important that we understand that we pay for city services by tax money. And one reason the churches should be interested, by the way, is I didn't check with Ricardo, but I suspect this land under this building is tax-free to this church. In other words, our constitution in the United States blesses us by allowing churches to have tax-exempt property. And even the offerings that we give to support the ministries like this church, the federal government accepts that is a contribution, legitimate contribution. It allows you to deduct the taxes. One thing that means is everybody else around you pays higher taxes because you pay less taxes. And one of the things that means for me is to tell my pastor friends, look, many people are beginning to question whether churches should have those exemptions because so many churches care, don't care one bit about the problems of the community. And so I think it's really important witness, especially at this time in history, for churches to be reaching out in community in fresh ways and in realistic ways, helping the police, the fire, the politicians, the businesses uh, to do the work that we can do as a partnership together. So I really respect well what I hear you doing as a church, as a congregation, and other churches here in the Phoenix Valley that I know of. Um, some of the most heroic people I know in this country are working here. Um, And uh, on issues like immigration, uh, which is uh, such an important issue. And that leads me to the opening paragraph of the New Testament, Matthew's Christmas story, um, which I would just share with you. Um, When I am asked, what does Christmas mean? I say, Christmas is about an Asian-born baby who became a political refugee in Africa. So the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus were undocumented resident aliens, intercontinental refugees. If anybody understands the refugee problem of this valley or any valley, our Lord would understand. He was an intercontinental refugee. He was born in a borrowed barn and buried later in a borrowed grave. If anybody understands the poverty, my Lord would understand the poverty. Every boy in his town, Bethlehem, under age two, died for Jesus before he could die for them on the cross 30 years later. If anybody understands the pain of crack babies, fetal alcohol, brain damage, HIV-infected kids who are suffering, or even dying for the sins of adults, Jesus would understand. All the little boys died for him before he could die for them. Now, I've just told you the Christmas story, according to Matthew, right? That's the Christmas story. I didn't invent it. I just took the stained glass off the text. And when you do that, you understand this story is about us. This story, this will, we can tell this kind of a Christmas story. The people in our communities will understand this. The migrants, the immigrants, the poor, all the others around us. The beauty of the biblical stories is that they touch where people are. And so we have to become better at telling the stories. 
and connecting to the people. Um, one of the big issues today, and this is a forum, so I'll tell it to you. I was in California recently speaking at uh, Westmont College, and uh, it was on Martin Luther King weekend. And I said, let me put a justice issue before you. California leads the nation in sperm bank babies. Sperm banks are producing and have, so far have been adopted 40,000 sperm bank kids into California families. Now, most of those kids will be adopted by same-sex couples who need sperm bank babies. But I am disturbed at the almost hatred many evangelicals have for same-sex couples in our culture. I hear that all the time. People just bad-mouthing this um, and I think those kids are going to end up in your kid's classroom someday. Those kids are going to be working in the company where you work and your kids work. So how are we going to prepare our Christians to reach out to sperm bank kids? And I'm trying to think of what text in scripture we could use to talk about this, for example. One text comes to mind is the virgin birth story. Mary's womb was used by an outsider. She agreed to that, right? Joseph adopted it, became a surrogate father for an outside and invisible heavenly father. Jesus grew up and a lot of people were saying, hey, where'd you come from? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? You can see echoes of that in John 7. And so as I read those stories, I'm saying, well, maybe one of the things we can say even to sperm bank generation babies in same-sex marriages, is the virgin birth, right in the opening story of Jesus' birth, may have some way for us to talk about how at the heart of the Christian message is an unusual family arrangement called the virgin birth. Can't be dogmatic about this. I wouldn't be. But I, I am always trying to find the text that can speak to the context in a, in a kind and generous way so that we can be loving, caring, and yet truthful. And we don't have to agree with everything, but we, I think we have to be uh, fulfilling the love of God as human beings for the people who are coming to our city. We have to learn to love people we do not like. We have to go through zip codes and not around them to get to the ends of the world um, in our missions programs. So I just want to thank you for, for this. Now, I, I did not love Chicago when I came. The, the name Chicago comes from an old Indian word, Chicago. It means bad smell. <laughs> the Indians had named Chicago bad smell because... The two main arteries, which were Indian trails, connected down at the Chicago River, which used to be a sluggish river, slowly flowing into Lake Michigan. And there was a skunk cabbage patch, big one. And so the natives just said, I'll meet you at the bad smell. And everybody went, that was Chicago. So my city starts with a bad smell, a tradition we kept alive in our stockyards and our politics uh, <laughs> until now. Okay, Chicago was dirty, ugly, noisy, and corrupt. Our mayors are named daily, so we pray for our daily bread. Um, 
Now they're saying, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, because the mayor is Emmanuel. Uh, we tell the story. Uh, we never doubted the resurrection in Chicago. Every four years, whole cemeteries rise and vote. <laughs> Just enough risen saints to um, win the next election, right? Our slogan in Chicago is vote early and vote often. Um, so um, when I moved in there, I had, I was assaulted by the corruption of my city and the ugliness. Well, it looked ugly the day it was new. The people who built it came from the Rhine, the Rhone, the Po, and the Danube River systems of Europe. They built Chicago to look like the places they left. Germans, Poles, Greeks, Slovaks, and others. And so what happened to me is, in order to understand my city and learn to love it, I had to wrap my arms around the the sending cultures. I had to expand my understanding of who they are and where they come from. Um, there are many interesting stories. Every Polish church in Chicago, and we are the second largest Polish city in the world still. Warsaw finally caught up and passed Chicago. Became the largest Polish city. It was just so ironic. Maybe you know this, but Poland did not exist on the map of Europe for 99 years, from 1815 to 1914. The, the people who created modern Europe, Metternich and the other uh, prime ministers of Egypt, after the Napoleonic Wars, they sat down and redrew the map and they gave the eastern half of Poland to the Russians and the western half to the Prussians, which is the other name for Germans. And the, Poland went underground into church basements. And this often happens in migrant churches. It happens to any church coming out of the Soviet era or the Muslim market. In the church basements, they keep alive the politics of their church. And so every Polish church basement for almost 99 years in Chicago was where they were agitating and taking collections to help overthrow the government back in, in the home country. And I'll tell you a story about that. The last people to come to Chicago were the Poles in World War I. They came dur just before the war started in 1914 and, and afterwards. And... The Chicago Tribune ran editorials against the Poles. They, they, they were considered papists, unfit for America, unworthy of America. And we told Polish jokes, all those things uh, about these people. The Chicago Tribune, as I say, Colonel McCormick, the editor, the funder of the Tribune, uh, publisher, he, he ran slanderous stories about Poles. He just hated them with a passion. And the the pastors finally said to the Polish uh, uh, churches, you know, I think what we should do is get back on those trains and go to New York and get back on the boats and go to Germany and fight the Germans. Because if we wear the American uniform in World War I, we will, um, we will be letting the Americans know that we are worthy to be citizens. So an incredible number of Polish immigrants without even knowing English, got in the trains and boats and went back to France where they were sent to the front lines to shoot Germans, to earn the right to be Americans. Sad fact is when they got to the front lines, they realized that the Germans, who now controlled half of Poland and the Russians the other half, 
they had taken the Polish people from their area and put them on the front lines as human shields. And so when the Poles wearing the American uniform got up out of the trenches to charge and take the hill and to kill the Germans, they were shooting their uncles, their cousins, members of their families, neighbors and friends. This is the Polish Holocaust. And so in every Catholic church in Chicago, there's a World War I monument. St. Hyacinth, which was in, by my church, it said 499 men from this parish, parish served in World War I. 499 from one church went off to do this. Those stories uh, impressed me as a young pastor. I, I was pastoring and, in the community, and Chicago was so hateful that in World War I, you could go to Germany and kill Germans or you could go to Lincoln Avenue and kill Germans. The Chicago Symphony was founded by a German. Once the war started, the French players in the symphony refused to play right notes. Whenever a German Bach, Beethoven, or Brahms piece was played by the symphony. And the choir, the conductor, Frederick Stock, it was said was conducting with tears run down his face. The oboe is supposed to tune the orchestra at an A, A, A F, at a 4.30 pitch. Maybe if you hear an orchestra tune, the oboe player plays the original note. The oboe player would play wrong, play a wrong note. So the Chicago Symphony played out of tune. When the Irish designed the Kennedy Expressway, they designed it to run through the Polish church, the Holy Mother Church, St. Stanislaus Koska. And if you're ever downtown Chicago and you're on the way to Kennedy Airport, up the Kennedy Expressway to O'Hare Field, you, you realize the original design was it run right through the mother church of the Poles. The Irish hated the Poles. They were all Catholics, of course. Protestants hated them all. Didn't realize that the people who were killing each other in World War II were struggling to go to church together in Chicago and New York and Philadelphia. So the urban history has been painful. It really has. There are some horror stories. In my neighborhood in Chicago, we had 400, we had 1,400 fires in one year. We had 300 in one summer. Arson for profit schemes, and a lot of kids died. Um, 27 families in my church had their apartments burned in one year. I was pastoring mostly public aid people. I had to learn to read the Bible in a different way to pastor people that had come from battered and broken environment. And a Ukrainian, Nestor Klimko, told me a great story. He said, he said, well, pastor, I've stayed alive. I haven't even told my kids this story. It's too painful. He said, I was in the prisoner of war camp on the Russian border between the Russians and Germans. Most of the people died. He said, it was so cold. God forbid, God help us. We took the bodies of our family and friends. They were frozen stiff. We built a little log cabin out of the bodies of our family, and we packed snow in the, in the cracks, and we stayed alive. Even the ceiling over us was the bodies of our relatives and friends. We stayed alive under the bodies of our dead family until the war ended. Now, when you, when you realize these are your neighbors in Chicago. These are your neighbors in any city. Suddenly, your view of the city changes. You, you have to love those people.
Mrs. Skulski had one leg and eight kids. She came to Chicago. Her husband was so damaged by the war by being sent off to the Russian front. He never recovered emotionally, physically, and he abandoned his wife. Mrs. Skulski was in my church. Her baptismal certificate was in several languages. She said, I'm alles zusammen, which is German for everything thrown in. It's a, I'm, I'm a cultural uh, chameleon. Um, but she said, Pastor, during the war, the, women in, the men were all conscripted to fight on the Russian front by the Germans. The women had to work in the coal mines. That's where her leg got infected. And she said, every time the train would go through to the Russian front in the winter, the Gestapo would come into the mines and at the point of a gun, ask all the women to go and shovel snow away from the train so it could get through with supplies for the soldiers so they could beat the Russians in World War II. And with a twinkle in her eyes, she said, Pastor, the women in our town did not give up. Well, well, those of us were shoveling snow away from the track, we organized the other women to go a mile or two down the track and shovel snow in front of the train. <laughs> he, she said, our goal was, if we can slow the train one hour, we're going to win this war. Now, she's telling me that in Chicago. She's got one leg. She's diabetic. She's got eight kids in my church in the inner city. She's on public aid. I'll tell you, it transformed me. I, I had to learn to love these people. I, I couldn't believe what they had been through, the suffering of these people who came to our city and were suddenly there, refugees, migrants, immigrants, people who could barely speak the language. And in my church, we had all of these folks, these kind of people. And it, it put me in touch with texts of scripture that were so important. Moses' mom was a public aid mom. She couldn't raise her baby. It was against the law to have a Jewish baby. She made a little boat. Oh, dad's not in the story. He, he's absent altogether. So she, the mother makes a little boat, floats her kid down the Nile, gets him rescued, gets paid for raising him. She beat the system. Let's hear it for public aid moms, huh? <laughs> Moses' mom was a public aid mom. One of my heroes is Moses. He was brilliantly educated. In Acts 7, we read, he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, which would be huge. Hieroglyphs, of course, uh, Euclidean geometry, uh, Nile, river, uh, hydrology, science, all of these things. Then he had 40 years of graduate study in the desert where God made him practice with sheep in a bad neighborhood before he would trust him with people in a bad neighborhood. And then Moses led this mud-making migrant group into the worst neighborhood in the Middle East. He built a culture for them. They were unemployed for 40 years on food stamps called manna. <laughs> Isn't that something? I mean, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm seeing the Bible just come alive. Suddenly, it, it makes sense to these people. I learned to love the people in the city I have a black son who said to me, Dad, you're the only dad I have. When I was nine, I used to walk on the street in Chicago in my neighborhood. I'd look for a black man who looked like me. I wanted a dad. You're the only dad I have. And then he said, Here's, he told us um, he wanted to be a Christian. He decided to become a Christian 
about a month after we moved him into our house. He said, Dad, I see how it works. You sent your son, Woody, into my school. He became my friend. You love your son. He brought me into your home. Because you love your son, you not only fed me, but you adopted me. I see how it works, Dad. God sent Jesus into the world. And anybody who becomes a friend of Jesus gets adopted. It was simple, but he nailed it. That's the good news. When you come to Christ, you get family. You, you get adopted. And the gospel for people who come from brokenness is, is as powerful as ever. So the combination of loving a city and loving the people in a city is an art. Uh, it's a science. I wish I could be here for your future uh, Wednesday nights when you're going to talk about the ecology. It's so important when you're going to talk about some of these other ethical issues. These are very important that Christians learn to think biblically and Christianly about ethics and about the subjects at hand because it's it's right now in the city where these issues are taking shape. We need some of you to become doctors and lawyers, of course, and some of you need to go into government and go into the back holes of society where where decisions are made often in secret places. We need some of you to, um, to think about Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah, the three books that come from Iran in the Bible. You know, we have five books from Iraq and Iran in the Bible. Jonah and Daniel from Iraq, and Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And I'll, I'll just close with the retelling of this story. Jerusalem lay in ruins a thousand miles to the west. Three Jews were in public service, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And Haman got the, gar- the, got the government to pass a law that all Jews should be killed. Bad law, terrible law, and it was a pogrom. That's what you would call it. It's Hitler's Holocaust uh, idea. Get rid of the Jews. I, I can imagine that the three of them might have met. In my imagination, it would go something like this. Nehemiah, a very organized guy, would call a meeting and say, we got a problem. We're, we're all dead. The government's going to kill us. What are we going to do? Esther said, I have a plan. I'm going to run for Miss Persia. First prize is I get to be a replacement wife for a pagan king. If I'm chosen first, I win the princess award I get to move into the harem and be rubbed in oil for a year. That's cool. And then maybe I'll get chosen to be the replacement wife of the king. And if I get to move into the palace, I'm going to access power and change the law. Did she do it? You bet she did. That's exactly what she did. Can you imagine that kind of discipleship? Can you imagine going to your pastor and say, I have a plan. I, it would look like what Esther did. You think the local rabbi and would have thought this was a good idea for a Jewish princess. But because she did it, Nehemiah was able to get his government grant, his letter of credit, his leave of absence, and help the model city's development plan in Jerusalem. Did he do that? You bet he did. He helped rebuild the city. Got the people to rebuild the wall and all of that. And then, of course, the preacher, Ezra, could come and rebuild the temple and get the word of God established again. 
You see, it's a trinity of people. The cities will not just be reached by preachers. You have to have people like Esther and Nehemiah who are working inside systems of law and politics and all these areas to be seed and witness and in hand in glove with churches. And This is how we work. This is how we have to interpret these texts. We have to make them practical. Not just a sociology book to inform us. We have biblical material that's first class on how we can do this with transformed cities. The Lord has given us the idea that Jerusalem will be a city. The new Jerusalem, heaven, will be a city. So you should practice in Tempe to get ready for a future city. Practice here because whether you like it or not, you're going to live in the city forever unless you don't want to go to heaven. Okay? So I, I'm telling Christians, people like me who grew up on the farm, I'm not against farming. I really believe in stewarding the whole earth and I, I want ecology to work and I'm a green supporter. But I do think that cities are a gift of God and they are a place of refuge for many. And you as a church are right in the heart of it. And so I say, uh, you're on a journey with the Lord God of mission. He trusts you enough to bring the whole world to your place. And you're at the center of it. And so I think as a congregation, you want to reach out and say, let him come. Let him come. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Go for it. You have some questions? Like the Egyptian mummy, we're a little pressed for time. So uh, we're going we're gonna to finish what we started right yeah. here. We did it. A handshake. Hey. Yeah, um, yeah. Take, take one minute and discuss around your tables um, just what's a good example of either a person or an organization that you know that is blessing the city. Just take a minute to discuss it, and in a few moments we will um, have the table up here and we'll do question and answer. Um, the way we're going to do it is text questions. So get out your phones and text all of life, followed by whatever your question is, to the number that's on the screen. And then we'll have the questions on the screen to be able to ask Ray and Ricardo. So go ahead and talk about a person or an organization that has blessed the city. And we'll be back in a minute. Let's go ahead and bring the discussions to a close. Uh, 
Again, feel free to text your questions to All of Life, followed by your question, uh, to the number 411-247. Let's go ahead and throw up the first question for Ray. And I also asked Ricardo to be here because Ricardo has learned quite a bit from Ray, and he knows and loves the city that we're in. So we're going to throw some questions at him as well. Let's go ahead and get the first question. What are some potential ways I could get to know and love my city better? Uh, Ray, why don't you take that one? Well, I, th- I think uh, Historical Society, check it out. Um, this call, and the public library in most cities has a historical section, so you can actually get some good books uh, about cities generally and about uh, this city. If you're at the university, uh, and many of you look like students, um, check out the urban sociology department in the university and see what in the bookstore they're asking you to read if you take certain courses. Um, If you know a professor who teaches at the university in the area of urban urban, uh, sociology, uh, you might even walk in on such a person and just say, by the way, I'm I'm interested in knowing more about Phoenix, uh, Tucson, cities of Arizona, neighborhoods, would you, would you recommend materials I could read and so on? I, I never had people turn me down when I did this. I, I Just ask questions. And when you drive, take different streets through town. I know this is, uh, is laborious because you're usually behind traffic and you want to get there quickly, so you take the familiar route. But I had disciplined myself to give windshield surveys. I really wanted to personally drive by every one of the 77 neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. And we're about double the population of um, Phoenix, about 9.4 million now. And uh, so I had, a, I had a lot of learning to do about my city, a lot of history too. You want to give some uh, thoughts about that, Rick? <clears throat> one, this is impossible to talk about anything next to you, Ray. Consider the fact that I just usually regurgitate what you say. <laughs> so if I go to the public library, there's some. Uh, <laughs> ironically, at the li- next to the library, we have the uh, Tempe History Museum. Um, that's that's a really good place to go to. In about ten minutes, you can learn the history of Tempe. They have just kind of like a huge timeline, something like you would do as a project as a kid, but a lot better than that. And you can walk through the entire history of Tempe. That'd be one area. Another thing to do is, um, many of you guys do this already, but ride a bike. But ride a bike through Tempe. Don't just ride a bike from Cartel back to ASU and back to Cartel. Um, (laughs) Ride down Apache and north and south of Apache and see some of the neighborhoods that are there. Uh, A lot of these people that are going to be displaced pretty soon with gentrification and some of the newer buildings and stuff that are are coming up. Uh, You get a chance to sit on city planning meetings. Uh, they're, they're, They're open to people who live in Tempe. I go to them as as often as I can, and you can hear about what's happening in the city, what has happened, and what they want to do in the future, and you can see some of the plans that are, that are happening. Um, and then the, the last thing is take public transportation. So other than the orbit, which I know is free and it's cheaper, but um, take the public transportation down Rule, down McClintock, down some of the areas here in Tempe, and I think you get an opportunity to see some of the, some of the different people here, and then just sit on a bus stop and wait and just see the different kids, that where they're coming from, where people are going, and try to engage conversations uh, with people in your, in your neighborhood, why they're there, why they particularly pick Tempe, or uh, why they're living here. So those are numerous no. ways. But I also tell people, go to the yellow pages and look up the churches 
and see which countries have churches in your area mm. and, and make a point of going to them. Um, you, you, they meet often at different times in your own church. So feel free to go and they will welcome you and uh, probably give you some of their food. Uh, Ethiopian congregation, Somalia, they love to do Anjara. Um, so yeah. yeah, you can do a lot of things like that. This Saturday, what time does the Indio Pack meet here, Jason? At 4 o'clock this Saturday, we, we, uh, there's a, Indio Pack is a bunch of Indian churches that get together from uh, India from India, Indian from India, and they meet here in this uh, in the sanctuary, and it's English, and there are different congregations from different denominations. They get together once a month, and it's the first Saturday of every month, and so you can come here at 4 o'clock if you guys want to do that just even this weekend. Yeah, that's how you do it. Although, you feel 545 free to ASU is playing Stanford, and so that's another <laughs> cultural thing. <laughs> oh. So their services are not as long, though. <laughs> Ricardo mentioned the bike, and I just want to say, just read a study, Tempe's number five is bikeable city, so it should be kind of easy. We beat out Portland, too. That was kind of cool. Uh, yeah. How come I just have a Sun Devils hat to look at up here? <laughs> Am I supposed to sense some bias in this? There is a table over here from Tucson. They're yeah. planning a church in Tucson. Tucson. Hey. We've been praying for them because they need All right. it. Yeah, they yeah. need it. <laughs> All right, let's throw the next Good. question up here. All right. Uh, ah, here we go. Yeah. How should a person love the city from the suburbs? Uh, should I move or is there another way? Here, real quick, if you can explain to help this question is explain the difference between when you're saying cities and metro areas yeah. so that people who live in like a Gilbert, Arizona, that's not a rural area that where you right. grew up. And so explain yeah. that I think yeah. would help maybe that question. Yeah. Cities made up of pods or cells, especially this kind of a city. L.A. and Phoenix are not one hub city with a ever-expanding uh, but you've got clusters. Uh, freeway intersections are the new cities in many cases. Um, suburbs used to be, in the 60s and 70s, the escape from the city. People deliberately got away from downtown Phoenix, pushed out, wanted to be away from what they perceived as the problems of the inner cities. That happened all across America. And it, we called it white flight and white fright. Uh, and what I have to say, tell you today is that that has changed. Suburbs are now the extensions of the cities. The same people who are here are now out there. And, and many ethnics never come to the inner city anymore. They, they land in the suburb. Uh, Bellevue in Seattle, where I am, Bellevue uh, was an escape town across Lake Washington from Seattle. And people ran away from the city. Now, uh, most of Bellevue is full of ethnics. It's, it's uh, just like as much as downtown. And part of the reason is Microsoft is in that town. And Microsoft gets 92% of its workers from outside the state of Washington, including every country in the world. And so we're all of a sudden, you walk into McDonald's on a Sunday morning in Bellevue, and there isn't a white Anglo-Saxon Eurocentric person anywhere. It's all looks like inner city. They're more professional, but they're people of color. So things have changed, yeah. Uh, I would say have a partnership with a city church. Uh, adopt a church, partner together. Um, ask them to help you get ready for the change that's coming to your neighborhood. Um, cities, by the way, are getting rid of the poor. I'll tell you why. In the 1990s, late 1990s, when Bill Clinton was 
was, was president, the federal government got out of poverty and gave it to the states and the cities to solve. The city pays for all of its services on property taxes. So, for example, Seattle is 161 square miles. Chicago is 228. L.A. is 595. San Francisco is 46 square miles. They cannot expand. So what do they do? They rezone. They build a huge tower, high-rise buildings. When you do that, you're taxing the airspace. You're turning the city into a cube. And you're displacing the poor. That's what's happening. So if you go to downtown Denver, you see they built stadiums downtown, just like Seattle did, in order to displace the poor and to attract the rich back downtown. So pretty soon, Chicago, will, uh, all our cities will be like uh, cities in the developing world. The, the poor will be way out in Bantu stands, invisible, like in Fresno, sleeping under freeways in, you know, during the dry season in the tunnels, in the water tunnels that are empty in the summer. Um, Fresno leads the country, by the way, in per capita poverty. And uh, it's tragic because they're right side by side with the richest agricultural valley in the United States, maybe one of the richest in the world. And so poverty and, and wealth are side by side. But I would just say that suburban people get ready because you, you're not exempt anymore from the problems of the city. Yeah. Go ahead with the next question. Why do some Christians seem to emphasize either spreading the gospel or serving the community? Hmm. What is the right balance? Oh. Well, it takes two tines of a scissors to cut, right? Which is more important, the one on top or the one on the bottom? Hard to know. How, how does a bird fly with one wing? Right? It, it can't. We need two. <laughs> we need not only the proclamation of the gospel, we need the demonstration of the gospel. And they have to go hand in hand, and we need both and, not either or. Um, it, it's very clear the gospel is good news. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what he will do is the core of the good news. And on the other hand, if you just... If you just say to the people, as James puts it, be warm, be filled, but you don't do anything for them, they will forget the gospel very quickly. Um, we need to demonstrate our love and our concern. Uh, and it, I think the church, for some, will be a clinic. For some, it'll be a sheepfold. It'll be a protective space. For others, the church is... a a school. A church has many functions. And the church, you remember, is tax exempt. So we, we have some social responsibility. Otherwise, we should pay taxes and tell the, the government, we'll just pay you to do it. But the, the United States Constitution was designed by a Presbyterian named James Madison, who understood that churches had social benefits. What we do with families to preserve whole families. What we do, if you keep one kid out of the prisons system, you've saved the taxpayers upwards to $50,000 a year to keep them out of courts and system. In other words, a lot of your work is preventative socially. 
but a lot of it will be remedial too. Um, the church should be a home for the broken and battered. And um, unemployed in my church, I hired a, a, a building minister. I call him not a custodian, but a minister of the buildings. And I said, don't you dare fix up anything. We had a hundred year old building, it was falling down. That was really good. Because what we did was, uh, Dave, my minister of the buildings, uh, taught repair carpentry classes all the time. Every Saturday, people come and pay a dollar and they learn to do sheetrock, mud and tape, stair building, insulation repair, window treatment, um, all those things. And then Dave could help get them jobs. And so our broken down building was a gift in a neighborhood that needed carpentry and had unemployed people a chance. I had, back in the old days before computers, I went to the rummage sales and bought a whole room full of Remington and Royal typewriters, old, you know, typewriters. Anybody remember a typewriter? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I typed a master's thesis and a doctoral dissertation on an $18 typewriter with whiteout you know, to make carbon copies and stuff like that in the old days. But anyway, um, I said to Nancy, my assistant secretary, I said, don't you dare type the church bulletin. You have a typing class and you teach public aid people how to type. And then let's put their names in the bulletin because they never get into print. And it didn't matter to me that the bulletin was sort of uphill one week and downhill the next. <laughs> that would be a misspelled word. Um, we were, we were teaching people job skills, and then we could advocate them when they applied. We could give a reference, and, and we just were very intentional about that. We didn't see any reason why there should be a gap between the preaching of the good news and the demonstrating of the good news. Yeah, it's a, it's a balance. Would you have anything to add to that, Ricardo? No. No? Okay, good. <laughs> All right, next question. Is it really necessary to have a multicultural church? Actually, Ricardo, I want you to take that one. Yeah, you should take a shot at this one. I should. Given that, never mind. Um, <laughs> uh, yes and no. I think a church needs to represent its city and its community and the people that are around it. I think, uh, so with that is, if you are in a particular location where 95% of the people, if I planted a church in Provo, Utah, right, um, Provo, Utah has about 99% white, Anglo-Saxon, Eurocentric people. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be trying to try to make a multicultural church. Uh, on the flip side, if you're in a community that happens to have those different ethnicities, then I think you just have to ask, what are we doing to, to say no to them? You know, every single church is doing something that welcomes some people and says no to some people. As soon as that we open up our mouths and start speaking in English, we're saying yes to some and no to others. Um, also, we have to understand the difference between multiracial and multicultural uh, because you can have different races in a particular congregation and you can say, hey, we're a multicultural church, but most of us have the same culture. We laugh at the same jokes. We watch, many of us watch the same TV shows um, and shop at the same places, eat the same type of foods, and culturally we're all a part of a particular dominant culture. Whenever you have people that are coming in from the subdominant culture, how, which we've seen recently in Tempe, especially in the last year and a half, and when I say subdominant, we've had this conversation before, people who aren't at the same restaurants you are, people who are not 
normally operating out of the culture where you are. It's your black Brian who, actually it's your white Brian growing up in Chicago, who had to learn and adapt to a particular dominant culture of where he found himself. Um, so to answer that question, yes and no, but I, I do think that um, for us in Tempe, I think we should. Um, I don't know what percentages break down. We're not going to stop and say we're going to fire people to hire people or anything like that. It's saying we are going to look at the community around us, and we are constantly looking at it and saying the people that live in my neighborhood, and I live here in Tempe, don't necessarily look. My neighborhood, our church does not reflect my neighborhood um, as best as I would say that we could. And, um, and this is a joke around the, the leadership team here in Tempe, but it's, it's, it's gotten noticeably more diverse in culture and race in the last two and a half years <laughs> for some reason. I wonder why that is. Yeah. I, I think I want to echo that and just say uh, uh, you can have a successful all-white church or all-black church, on the other hand, or all-Hispanic church. Languages are hard. First generation, they will probably need to be in a small group of their own language people. But their kids are early adopters, and they will want to blend with the broader culture. So there are things we can do. It used to be just assumed white people could not go to church with black people. And they also assumed they couldn't play at ASU on the football team. With mm-hmm. you, you couldn't have a black quarterback, remember? You couldn't have a black coach for white people. Now, without the Holy Spirit, the culture at large has learned that that's a myth. Um, it seems to me with the Holy Spirit, the blood of Christ sets us free from that. Um, and we, we should be able to understand that we can differ. Um, I told a story this afternoon. Um, you, you heard. I was in a church in Miami, and this is a very telling story. Um, I walked in. There were 34 flags hanging from the balcony of the sanctuary. And I asked is it a missions conference? And they said, no, these are the flags of our members. We have 34 nations in our church. This is in Dade County, Miami. And I said, well, how does that work? They said, well, when we disciple people here in Miami, we buy a flag for them if we don't have it. And we plant the flag, big classroom-sized flag, on the com- by the communion table. And the Sunday that we welcome them as members, we welcome the members, and the flag of their country into our fellowship. Then he said, we give the flag to the hospitality committee and we say, serve their food at our next church meal. And they have a fellowship dinner once a month on the last Sunday. And at that meal, the newest member gets to sit at front and center. They're going to eat their food from their country. Everybody's going to eat. And he gets to say, or she, welcome to my table. And let me explain my food. And this is a terrific idea. Then he said, we give the flag to the art committee and we say, find some art from the country that sent us our latest members. And so the church looks like the Louvre Museum. There's art everywhere on every wall. It's, it's cloth art. It's, you know, batiks. It's cheap. There's bamboo art. There's pottery art. There's all kinds of art that's not terribly expensive. You can bring it back in a suitcase. And... The pastor said to me, we want every kid in Miami to know that Jesus is not a tribal God, but Jesus brings the tribes together here in this church. I'm looking at a lot of bare walls, pastor. You have some opportunities here. 
Just to get some art going. The meal that we served tonight was was chili and cinnamon rolls, which we're not really sure what ethnic. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's kind of off my chart too, actually. I looked at that. No. Cornbread, I understood, but one thing I want to want to add to that is. Um, we have an opportunity not just to wait for people to come into these four walls, but to go out into the streets and make some friendships. Yeah. Um, Mark Rents may be back here somewhere. Hi, Mark. All right, there he is. Um, Mark is kind of a, he works at ASU, knows a ton about international students, and you may not realize this, but ASU has more Saudi Arabian students than any other um, university in the country. Um, I may be lying with that statistic, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, a large number of Somalis uh, are just down the road. And with our church, we actually have an English program where we uh, walk with them. People are moving into our neighborhoods. The question is, will we have the little bit of courage that it takes, maybe the little bit of faith that, this, that the Spirit can supply to walk across the street, if not get in an airplane, let's at least walk across the street and uh, befriend some of the people that God has brought to the city. And if you want to know some real practical ways to do that, come find me, and we'll talk about it. Um, I like to talk about the church at Antioch in the book of Acts from Acts 11 to 13 because Antioch was a city of about a half a million. There were two interstate highways that went by Antioch. One was the Anatolia to Egypt highway, and the other was this silk road, spice road, that went from east to west. And... um, Antioch had a walled city, but then in, in between, inside the big outer wall, are ethnic walls. We know from our studies now that there was a Latin quarter, there was a Jewish quarter, there was a Greek quarter. Interestingly, there was a, um, an African quarter. These quarters all started coming over the walls to hear the gospel in the Antioch church. And this surprised everybody. And so they sent Barnabas up to check it out. And Barnabas, bless his heart, he decided to create an international pastoral team. And there mentioned five people in Acts 13, verse 1. Simeon the Black, a sub-Saharan. It's called in the English Bible, Simon the Niger, but Niger is just the transliterated Greek or Latin word for black. So they had a black man on staff. Then they had Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is on the north coast of Libya. He would have been a Berber. He would have been a brown man. So two Africans. Then they had Menaean, a Palestinian politician who said worked with Herod. And then they had uh, uh, Barnabas himself from Cyprus. He was actually North African, but he owned real estate in Cyprus. So he was on that team. And then they had Paul, uh, then called Saul, who was a European-trained Jew. It's fascinating that the very first city church we know anything about had three continents on their pastoral team. And I think, and that's the church that invented missions. And I don't think they invented it when they commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go out and plant churches. I think they invented it when they staffed up with with a team from three continents to reach the city of Antioch, which which was a human zoo at that time. So I think we have models in the scripture to follow. It's not always easy. Uh, The music will need to change. There have to be some variety in the services. Uh, You may have to do some translating. The arts, if you have artists, this is a beautiful way to 
bring the art to the service. And uh, I think uh, we all have to learn songs from different cultures as time goes on. It's not always convenient, but I think it's powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah, that's great. And on that, we're going to end the night. Uh, would you go ahead and give uh, Ray and Rick a hand? You do. Um, three things that uh, I'm going to put on the website tomorrow. I'm not going to talk about them much. One, the CSA. Eat your veggies. Um, <laughs> two is we need more volunteers for uh, serving Imagine Schools and the English program there. And the third thing is, Ricardo mentioned bikes. Well, we do this uh, crazy bike tour thing. We're going to do another one on January uh, 11th, where basically you bring $20 and we do a bike tour of the city. We learn about the city. We, and then we do all kinds of good stuff like give Orbit drivers $200 tips and pick up dog poop and give awards to awesome front yards and stuff like that. Uh, I'm going to put all of that on the blog tomorrow, uh, so be looking for that. Uh, thanks for coming, and uh, God, we just pray that you would bless all of us, help us to uh, take in what we've learned tonight so that we would be a blessing to our neighbors and to the nations, to those you're bringing here and to those you are sending out. We thank you, God, for your grace and kindness towards us and pray that we would be conduits. In Jesus' name, amen.